This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security. This week will be the last and holy before Israeli elections, a guide for the perplexed what to watch on election night. Also, Britain has a new prime minister. That hasn't happened in like eight weeks. We'll talk about that. Adidas drops Kanye. Better very late than never. And our very own Jonathan Friedland is this week an Englishman in New York. It's Unholy. I'm Yuni Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian, usually in London, but as you've heard, this time in New York. Unholy to Jews on the news from Kesha Podcast. What are you doing in New York? Well, I'm shamelessly hawking my book again, <laughs> but to a whole new audience, um, to uh, the unsuspecting American public this time, the escape artist by me is out in the United States now, and I, therefore I'm here to promote it um, initially and uh, poised to do, as we speak, an event with our very good friend, friend of the podcast, David Remnick at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. That will have just happened by the time most people hear this. Um, and then a few other bits and pieces. But then after that, instead of heading on the plane back home, which is what otherwise would have happened, I'm staying here for the best part of the next two weeks, actually, to cover the US uh, midterm elections, crisscrossing the country, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, ending up in DC for election night. So it's going to be a busy couple of weeks with elections, elections, elections. And yet, <laughs> it is actually the change of power in our two countries rather than the third one, the United States, that has gripped the news agenda, my one and your one. I mean, you're the one counting the days. How long? Because you're counting the, on I'm your prison counting cell. The days, I'm counting the hours. You're, it's 100 hours. Is it? More or less before polls open on Tuesday morning. Four days left, actually, on the clock, and we're really at the finish line. Um, and, and where we are right now, we should say, uh, recording this uh, very late on uh, Thursday. Look, we are at a, a point where the last final, last and final polls will be published tomorrow, and then no polling. The next poll is the exit polls at 10 o'clock Israel time on Tuesday, which means that... The general public doesn't see these shifts, but the parties themselves continue to conduct polling. And these are the, essentially the kind of three days in which a lot can happen on overdrive. I remind you the best example of this is Yair Lapid's party in 2013. This is when they grew in those three days from 13 seats to 19 seats. So this is generally when a lot of trends can sort of gain traction. Um, where we are right now, we should probably uh, say, is that the uh, Netanyahu bloc is very unified on uh, the finish line and the left or the anti-BB block is fractious and argumentative. I mean, there are at least four parties in that block that are really dangling on the threshold. And as I give you the guide to what you should watch on election night, I would say that that would probably make for a very long night because until you know if those four parties pass and they are the Labour Party, Merits, which is left of the Labour Party, Hadash Tal, one of the important Arab parties, and Avigdor Lieberman with his Israel Beitenu party, until we know what that what happens with that, we're going to have a pretty long night, I would assume. And a pretty long night means lots of little packs of nuts, peanuts and things for you to consume. Isn't that the secret snack that you're going to be stocking I'm actually, Yeah, I've moved to, I'm very, I've become a very simple woman. I've moved to coffee and chocolate. Okay, that's, that's healthy. Um, so we, look, we're going to plunge, <laughs> we're going to plunge properly into that uh, in time. But 
there hasn't been a change of a senior British minister for at least 90 minutes um, as you Amazing. and I are speaking. So, so this counts as a rare moment of calm for, you know, a moment to take stock. Um, this week, a new prime minister arrived. Uh, I think the previous one was there for 44 days. The one before that, not that long. I mean, just over three years for Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, 44 days. But now Rishi Sunak, or what did Joe Biden call him? Rushad Sundak or something? He just couldn't get the name right. It was close enough. He was, yeah, close. Rishi Sunak, the former Chancellor Finance Minister, now elevated without even an no, election. No, you have to say Chancellor of the Exchequer. This is what we brought in a co-host for with a British accent for you to say, Chancellor of the Exchequer. The full title, please. full former Chancellor yes, of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, Thank is you. now the First Lord of the Treasury and Prime Minister to His Majesty King Charles III. Is that do it right um rishi That's sunak fine. is the new prime minister and 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 you know that was such a big event in british politics back in the old days you know for, uh, that you could be a political reporter for 13 years and over, only cover one change of prime minister in for example the from 97 to 2013 2010 rather now it happens so often that they weren't even doing kind of extended news shows. It just was like, oh, another mm-hmm. one. It was hard to get that excited about it. It happened since we last spoke. Um, Conservative members of parliament had the initial job of sifting all the various candidates, and they only gave enough votes to, for there to be one, which meant there wasn't a contest of among the party members, which is what the party wanted to avoid. Big moment. It means, you know, since you and I last spoke, Boris Johnson could not get the votes together. He tried to put a gloss on it saying, oh, no, I did have the votes. I just didn't want to do it, um, which somebody somebody said it was like saying, you know, I've got a lottery ticket with all the correct numbers, but I don't feel now is the right time for me to win a lot of money. So I've ripped up my ticket into shreds. How believable or not is that? Um so the Boris Johnson comeback didn't happen. I think that leaves him diminished. But Rishi Sunak there, and, you know, significant on lots of levels, but one of them is that he is the first prime minister of Britain who isn't white. He's the first prime minister of Britain who practices a faith other than Christianity. And you'll notice I'm wording this carefully because a few British journalists yeah. said he's the first prime minister from an ethnic minority. Not quite. Mm-mm. Not yeah. quite. Because unholy listeners will, of course, know that Benjamin Disraeli was a 19th century conservative prime minister, born a Jew, always thought of as a Jew. Yes, baptised into Christianity by his father just in his, you know, twelve age 12 or 13. His father had had a row with his synagogue about membership fees. Can you believe that? There's, there's a lesson here. I feel like there's a lesson you're trying to teach us it's in this story. It's unbelievable, isn't it? But, that is, but, you know, but people this is think, interesting. What, yeah. Yeah. No, no, people think that. Well, people think it was must be some big epic thing about faith and, you know, conversion and all that. It was a broigus. It was a, you know, it was a row. <laughs> it was a machloikus between, I mean, wrong to use Yiddish because, of course, Benjamin Disraeli is Sephardi Jew. So they, mm-hmm. they, there was a row. His father fell out with the synagogue and in more or less in a fit of pique, really, baptised the son. But he was called Disraeli. You know, the clue is in the name. And he was mm-hmm. always described in su- and depicted in cartoons and so on, in such Jewish and, and frankly, anti-Semitic terms, that the idea that Britain hasn't dealt with a non-ethnic, as it were, non-ethnic minority prime minister is false. So Sunak is there. The big promise he's making, or hence my joke about we haven't had a change for a few, you know, at least 90 minutes, is to calm everything down after these months, years in some ways. 
years since Brexit, I would say, of roiling political tension, now a bit of stability. Well, I have two questions for you. One is, why is it, and I don't want to get you all agitated, but why is it that these instances of change are coming from the Conservative Party? Why is it three women, now uh, a prime minister of color for the first time? Why is it coming from the Conservative Party and not from the Labour? And the other question was that I had a uh, friend here in Israel asking me, is he like the British Barack Obama? And I instantly said, no, no, he's not, because the biography is, is quite different. And also, I would probably say the charisma is a little bit different, but I would want to hear your your take on that. Well, on the second one, you're absolutely right. He's no Barack Obama. You know, Senator, I worked with Barack Obama. Barack Obama was a friend of mine. He's no Barack mm-hmm. Obama. Miles away on the charisma stakes. You know, he delivered his first message robotically and woodenly to an yep. autocue looking at the wrong camera. So he's he's certainly not that. And he's got a quite, you know, like he's likeable manner. He's absolutely that um, finance guy. You know, there is a particular type who mm-hmm. um, we're going to come on to what were globalist, I think, later. But he really is part of that sort of international financial elite, homes in California, homes in London, worked for Goldman Sachs, you know, utterly across the tech, financial jargon, wears trainers in meetings. He's just a, a really recognisable type that people would know from Silicon Valley or high finance or tech, people who are very wealthy, very slick. He went to one of the most elite schools in this country, Winchester School, tens of thousands of pounds in fees to go there. So the idea that it's some hard scrabble, improbable story, uh, you know, Obama style, not really. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, it's still a milestone. So there are people on the left trying to say, well, it doesn't really count. He's not really, you know, this isn't the breakthrough of having a person of colour at the top. Well, you know, because his views aren't right and he doesn't represent people, other people of colour. Look, the facts are the facts. He is a person of colour and he's now Prime Minister. So that is a big deal, which goes straight to your next thing of why does this keep happening on the right, not the left? And it's a question that the you know progressive types have been really wrestling with themselves. They're asking it of themselves. There's some partly structural institutional things going on in Labour about how it selects candidates, which will be, I don't want to get fully into the weeds on those, so we'll avoid the real arcane detail. But the point is, a Conservative Party leader can parachute people of calibre into Parliament much more easily than a Labour leader can. And so David Cameron, leader of the Conservative Party, oh, at least five leaders ago, um, he (laughs) made a decision to make the Conservative Party more diverse and without any needing to sort of consult or go through boring party structures, which a Labour leader does, he just handpicked Rishi Sunak and put him into a absolutely safe Conservative district, they would say, in the States, but constituency, an area that is overwhelmingly white. And Labour has tended to allow local volunteers to choose their party candidates. And they tend to be that candidates from ethnic minorities tend to come from seats that represent, that have big numbers of ethnic minority members. So there is just not this sort of swiftness of transmission there. That's one thing. The other thing is a kind of almost an ideological thing, I would say, which is the Conservatives just put it all on individuals. So they're not interested in changing society and dealing with structural racism. They would never use that phrase, just as they weren't interested in dealing with structural sexism in the era of Margaret Thatcher. It was all about the individual of singular talent and then not really making any big changes. So, you know, people say about Margaret Thatcher, she she appointed famously zero women to her cabinet. Mm -hmm. There was one person right at the end who was half in, half out of the cabinet, but she really didn't promote women. 
So it's a very mixed and complex record, but the left definitely have a problem with it and Labour need to step up. They admit that. They've only ever had white male elected leaders, only ever. And they know that's a problem. Last thing I would say about it, it's partly they're like the Democrats had to go to sort of Joe Biden to reassure people they had to play safe with a very mm-hmm. conventional candidate, white male guy. In a way, I think there's a mm-hmm. bit of that with Labour too, that they feel they're offering so much change they need to reassure people with somebody familiar like a Keir Starmer and the Conservatives don't have to do that. So that's a, a long answer, but I'm aware not really a sufficient one because the left haven't sufficiently answered that question. Yeah. Well, you know, that I uh, occasionally when I have trouble sleeping at night, I watch, this is an embarrassing confession, I watch um, old interviews on 60 Minutes. And somehow this week, somehow between the charisma-less uh, Liz Truss and the charisma-less Rishi Sunak, I, I, I stumbled upon this interview that Mike Wallace did with Richard Nixon. And he said something like, you know, there's, this is his first line in the interview, right? He says, there's been a lot of talk uh, in recent years about uh, style and charisma. No one would suggest that either you or your opponent, Hubert Humphrey, have a good deal of it. <laughs> and that is like the first line That's of the great. interview. And I was like, I can't believe you said that. Yeah. So that was what I went through my mind was to see I saw Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss. Not the greatest... A charismatic uh, figures. We can move on to discussing Israeli politics, which definitely I, well, doesn't I was gonna, have I was a shortage make a of charisma se- there. I was going to make a seamless link because I was going to say that is not your style when interviewing candidates <laughs> for the top job in Israel's elections. I'd love to see you face to face. Well, just yeah. insulting someone right off the right bat, that, right, Mr. Lapid? Even your worst enemies <laughs> wouldn't accuse you of great judgment or statesmanship. <laughs> um, you know, so go on. So let's so let's hear this guy to the perplexed because let's face it, people are perplexed by what is yep. going to happen yep. on this election night. To say nothing of the broadcast night for eleven hours. Okay, so what I would uh, suggest to watch, firstly, of course, as always, and even more so in the last four elections, the magic number of sixty-one. The Israeli parliament has one hundred and twenty seats. Whoever needs to form a government has to have sixty-one uh, seats, or all of the parties in his block have to add up to uh, sixty-one. Netanyahu failed to do this four times. He really hopes he can do it this time. So the first thing to look at immediately as the exit polls come out at 10 uh, 10 p.m. is, does he have 61? Now, you might not know that, uh, as I said, because there are some uh, parties, especially on the other block, that are dangling on the threshold. If one of them doesn't pass, Netanyahu is a prime minister. The other thing I would look at, which I find very interesting in these elections, we've talked about this a lot, how many seats does the far-right leader Itamar Ben-Gvir and his party, Religious Zionism, actually he's number two in that party, number one is Bezalel Smotrich, how many seats do they get? In the outgoing Knesset, they have six and they are projected to have anything between 12 and 14. And in comparison, how many seats does Benny Gantz have? So of course, it's it will be a very interesting thing to see whether Ben-Gvir, this far-right uh, politician, manages to get more votes than Benny Gantz, former head of the uh, IDF, chief of staff of the IDF, and now uh, leading the National Unity Party, the Machanam Amlachti, as it's called in Hebrew. He is someone that if he gets more uh, seats than Ben Gvir, it is important. He might have a chance to form a coalition if he gets less. First of all, that says something about the country we live in, right? That a far-right leader, like Itamar Ben-Gvir, a far, far-right leader, will get more seats than someone who used to be the IDF chief of staff. But it also means that his dream of becoming prime minister in this round is completely uh, diminished. And so the thing about the who clears the threshold, especially now mm-hmm. that we're in this period where there are no opinion polls, 
How does anyone have any way of predicting that? Or do we not? Are we just going to have to wait till you bring the news of the exit poll on, on, on at 10 p.m.? The, the exit polls are maybe even later. Maybe even later when the actual final results come in. I, I keep going back to the example of how in 2019, yeah. Naftali Bennett uh, was short 1,461 votes from actually entering the Knesset. So this might be something we'll discover only in the early uh, hours of, of Wednesday morning and not know this uh, at 10 o'clock. But look, what Netanyahu is saying, and I believe him on this, because we will talk about his credibility in a minute when we talk about what happened this week. What he's saying is this time around, the only government I am going to form is a government with the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, and with the religious Zionism. He is definitely saying this time the opposite of what he said last time. Itamar Benvir will be a minister in my government. So I think that is extremely important to know that Israel might be heading to that direction. Now, look, we talked about Itamar Benvir a lot. What I wanted to bring into our conversation today is, first of all, some interesting stats. We asked our pollster, I asked our pollster to bring us some stats. Who are the people who vote or are likely to vote for him? What are their ages? Where do they come from? I think that's very, very interesting because we keep saying this person is, remember, comes from the far right. This is someone who has never really disentangled himself from the racist teachings of Meir Kahana. He's also someone who celebrated when Rabin was assassinated, but he's been trying to sell himself as this, someone who has become a little bit more moderate. And a lot of people are buying into this message. He's charismatic. He's on social media. He brings in the people who are very young in Israel. So that is, you know, a very interesting thing. I, yes. ju- I, 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 I want to jump in just on this point about... Um, his um, ability to have made himself seem more palatable, moderate. A long-time listener wrote mm-hmm. to us to make a very interesting point a couple of days ago, which says, don't exclude or uh, overlook the role of the media itself, the Israeli media and mm-hmm. television. Mm-hmm. In that process, part of Ben Gvir's normalization, if you like, is the fact that he made himself somebody who, and TV made him somebody who was a guest acceptable as a guest on TV. That process, and I think a bit about Trump in 2016, the coverage the cable networks gave Donald Trump, that Do- I'm told, Itamar Ben-Gvir on TV a lot, interviewed a lot, very apparently a very good TV talking head. He, does, he performs on TV well. That that is part of the process that has made him seem a figure that is mainstream and acceptable. He didn't do it all by himself. Runs the critique of a long-time unholy listener. You'll tell me if that's wrong, but the idea that it wasn't just something he did by swapping out the word, as you've you know, you've told us before, of calling you know, death to terrorists rather than death to Arabs, he was also helped in this process by a media that had made him seem palatable. Well, I'll say a few things about that, being the representative of the Israeli media between the two of us. Of the two, um, yeah. Yes. Uh, then I will say a few things about that. First of all, Itamar Ben-Gvir's ascension is long in the making. Remember, this is a man who worked many years to convince the Israeli Bar Association that he, he can become a lawyer. He became a lawyer. What he did was defend mainly extreme right-wing activists who were engaged in all kinds of terror uh, activities. And that made him someone that was interviewed a lot on television. He is their lawyer. The story is big on the news. He will come on. He's also very charismatic, as a lot of populists are. So the more he came on, they'd bring him on some more. And so obviously that is part of it, for sure. But the uh, hug that he has received from Netanyahu, who I think now is regretting a little bit of it, and also the fact that he has managed to bring in, and again, he works not only on television, he works on social media, he's the 
you know, the, the hottest ticket on TikTok in this in this election campaign. All of this also serves to explain his rise. Now, I want to say something else about what happened in recent years. And I, I had this conversation, very interesting conversation with a friend from Beersheba who told me that many of her family members are going to vote for Benville. And I remember asking her, you know, explain this to me. And she said, what you don't understand is that it's not because they hate Arabs, it's because they're afraid of them. I said, okay, explain this a little bit more to me. She said, remember, and and I'm reminding you as well, during Operation Guardian of the Walls, besides Hamas shooting rockets to Israel, also many cases of intercity violence between Arabs and Jews. More Jews than Arabs were injured in these cases. And what it created was a situation in which Fear was the dominant feeling in the streets. And Itamar Benville managed to convince people that he is the answer to this very complicated problem of relationships between uh, Arabs and Israelis. I think that is a major part of what is going on here. Again, if you look at the demographics of the people who vote for him, 48% are younger than 34 so that is that also tells you a little bit about what the you know who the electorate is. Um, but this will definitely be a huge story now outside of Israel. All of this, him trying to portray himself as moderate and being on television and being care that is not going to you know stick. People are going to look at Israel and say this is a country in which someone like Itamar Ben Gvir is going to be part of the government again if Netanyahu wins. That's going to be a very big problem. Yeah. I mean, I I remember the Jörg Haider episode when he was a minister in an Austrian government and the EU just sort of, it didn't quite fully break off diplomatic relations, but it just went into a kind of deep freeze where the government were considered untouchable for a period until he was out of government. And I do wonder, I don't think it will happen quite that way this time. I just think the politics of it are different. But it's it's a big taboo that is being broken by him being a minister in a government. And fascinating that you've told us that that is up front and out there. Now, tell me, I've see, seen some coverage of these recordings with Ben Gvir's ele- you know, election partner, uh, Smotrich Court on tape. And somebody said to me, the best translation of what he called Bibi is Liar McLiarson, like as in a, <laughs> you know, which I think is quite nice, meaning, you know, a son, a lying son of a liar. Um, but you know, you tell me more about that, and just and whether that has any impact at all. If there's any strain between the right and the far right there. So first of all, um, yeah, I've, the, the funny thing about the story is again that I've been also struggling. I've seen these like media outlets in English coming out from Israel and, and trying to translate what he actually said. What he said was in Hebrew, Shakran ben Shakran. Which translates, you were right about that. It's like liar, son of a liar, basically is what he said. And why this is interesting, Smotrich, of course, being probably the person who will be the closest ally that Netanyahu has, if he does indeed form a government. Again, head of the religious Zionism party, he's number one. Ben Gvir is number two. And he was caught on tape saying this. Netanyahu is indeed lying through his teeth when he said he didn't want to form a government with the United Arab List, with Ram, the Islamist party, Mansour Abbas's Islamist party, he's lying. Of course he wanted to form this government, and I stopped him. And then he goes on to say Netanyahu is, is trouble for us, but that's what we have, this is what we can work with, etc. Why is this important, Jonathan, Without you know, besides being great gossip? It's important because Netanyahu's narrative throughout this year and a half was to say, I never wanted to form a government with Ram. They support terrorism. And that is what he used to barrage this government day in, day out, to say, you're sitting in government with people who support terrorism. Now, the minute that Sadat Smotrich, his most important ally, comes out and says, no, but he's lying. Of course he's lying. He wanted to form a government. I was the only one who stood in, in his place, or who prevented it. 
that means something. And anyway, still, an, even if all, all that, what would happen is it would just shift the balance within the BB bloc. So there'd be some right. Ben Gvir supporters think, right, I'm not going to vote for BB. I'll vote for Ben Gvir. Either way, the BB slash rightist block just expands or anyway, the energy moves from one component to the other, but it stays within that block. True. True, true. But it is it is an issue because what it means is there's no ideology here. It's only politics. And <laughs> what happens next time around if Netanyahu is stuck in the same position and wants to form a government with Am? Is it a possibility? Maybe. But I think it's pretty clear to everyone in the political uh, arena that this was the true story. And the Netanyahu, who's extremely talented in this, managed to cover it up. So not a very good week for him with these tapes. Not a very big good week for Lapid either. Uh, two issues coming up. One of it, a story that you never understand why politicians get tangled with these, of his giving out different versions about what he did in the military. Mostly, by the way, he wrote for a military newspaper called Mamachane, kind of the stars and stripes of the Israeli military. But the beginning of his military career, once he said he was in, in defense for an aerial defense, and the other time he said he was in the armed corps, armored corps, and, and, and he got sort of confused with these versions. You never want to do that. Um, and of course, the more important story was that the uh, uh, member of Knesset, Aida Tumis Sliman, who comes from his looks like could have been his own block or a party that he wanted to, wants their support. That's the Khadash Tal Arab party came out after uh, Lion Den terrorists uh, were killed in an IDF raid and she called them martyrs on Facebook and said Nablus bids farewell to our martyrs today. That doesn't look good if, if Lapid wants them as part of his coalition. Doesn't translate well into Hebrew. Just something on that Nablus raid, by the way. Just, uh, 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 no, six dead, I think, in that raid. And that made news on the BBC and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And it just made me think it was, a, it was a sign that people are, they're, they're looking, they're watching. There hasn't been that much coverage around the world of what goes on mm -hmm. on the West Bank. But Six Dead will get people's attention. And and, the, and even, you know, the media is not always a hugely deep business. Often shallow things count. The fact there's this new group with this eye-catching name, Lion's Den, that catches the media's eye. I think all of this... The fact that there, things are flared up um, in the occupied West Bank and then the arrival of Ben Gvir, if that happens into government, you know, watch for Israel rising up, coming up the news and political agenda a bit in the coming weeks mm -hmm. if these things come together. And I felt the reaction to those deaths in uh, those killings in Nablus was uh, a, perhaps a telling indicator of all of that. I, I was just going to say a little postcard as well to this point about Ben Gvir and um the Jorg Haider thing, or him having a part in a government. There's a corporate version of that, which is I learned this week that the head of the, I suppose it's the Zara franchisee in Israel, mm -hmm. right? Because it's not, mm -hmm. this person doesn't have a role within global Zara, but he heads up the Zara brand in Israel. He's a supporter of Ben Gvir. And again, I wonder again if that will cause consumer pressure we're going to be talking in, in later on about a big retailer having to, um, you know, be deal with public opinion backlash over accusations of racism, but the clothing retailer. But Zara, I just wonder about that too. All, all these things just could add up somehow. Yeah. Well, first of all, what it the indication here, what it, it's indicative of the fact that this is not only someone who brings in the young electorate and gets a hug from Netanyahu and has you know television on his side, as you said before, but there's also bigger money here 
right? I mean, if the uh, this person from Zara Israel, the CEO of Zara Israel, essentially, uh, Joey Schwebel, is someone who wants house a house get-together with Itamar Ben-Gvir. That's the story that we published this week. First of all, it shows that Itamar Ben-Gvir has some sort of funding. He's not going rogue. It's actually there are serious funders behind him and people who back him and sponsors who are serious. And also what it kind of started in this country is Arab Israelis who came out and kind of threw their, um, in protest throughout Zara clothes or burned Zara clothes. A lot of people kind of reacted to that and said, hey, how about instead of just throwing out your Zara clothes, come vote on election day because there's a very big question, what will be the voter turnout in the Arab communities that will, of course, determine these elections? So I mentioned another retailer in trouble over Mm -hmm. links to views deemed racist. And of course, I'm talking about, I would say Adidas. Uh, Some people say Adidas. And then I think you probably say something else completely. How do you put it? What what did you how would you just a minute? Please be kind to rewind. What would you say? Well, in Britain we call it Adidas. That's the name of the brand. But you're gonna pronounce okay. it completely. How do you say it? I was gonna say Adidas, Adidas, but that's how you say it. No, in, some people do Israel? too. So yeah, okay, so it's a different thing. Um, but this is all about Kanye West. And this yes. is uh, you know, we talked about it when it first broke here, and we said this would exercise the Jewish world. We had Deborah Lipstadt. Uh, Joe Biden's special envoy on monitoring and combating anti-Semitism on the podcast uh, a few weeks back. And she was saying then, uh, you know, gave to us, I think, first her reaction to his remarks, you know, to bring people up to speed. He went on this rant on social media, also in interviews, attacking Jews, saying he was going to go on to DEFCON 3 against Jewish people. He's doubled down. He said a whole lot more. Uh, There was this you know, widely circulated image of a banner hung over a busy freeway in Los Angeles saying, Kanye is right about the Jews, which made people think this is really escalating. He has lit a kind of blue touch paper here. And the big pressure was on this brand, I would say Adidas, you might say Adidas, who had a huge corporate relationship with him because of this brand of... uh, Sneakers, I suppose. Yeezy, is that the right word thing? Am I getting this right? You know, people people in a younger demographic than me will be very familiar with this. The point is $250 million worth of business relationship, business ties to Kanye West. And they did not immediately cut links with him despite what he had said. And then eventually they did. And the the interesting thing in the discussion among Jews has been that, you know, neither one of these options was a good option uh, is sort of how it's worked, where – it was pretty bad that this person who could say such vile and frankly murderous things about uh, Jews, if you're talking about going on DEFCON 3, this isn't just a microaggression, this is a threat of murderous violence. Um, If he was just seen to be acceptable, that it was still okay for him to be a big sort of brand with inside one of the big global uh, clothing retailers, that's bad. But once they dropped him, that's also bad. And it's released, you know, a wave of commentary and observations, including one, for example, one black voice with a, you know, a fair few followers, uh, closing on 600,000 followers on Twitter, uh, Tori Smith, former uh, American football star, saying Kanye never got cancelled for saying all of the wild things he said about black folks, because there aren't many black people in powerful positions. He literally offended a group of people that do have power and influence in every space. 
It's not rocket science, don't be stupid, he said. Meaning, the one group of people you can never offend are the Jews because they secretly control everything. And, you know, this is bad news in itself. And it means that when somebody actually is called out effectively and pays a price for their overt racism, and in this case, anti-Semitism, it only reinforces anti-Semites' views that Jews are the secret force and secret power behind world events. You and I talked about this play I was involved in that was just closed in London. One of the interviewees for that play said, recalling her experience in the student world, she said the bad, it's a very self-reinforcing prejudice, anti-Semitism, because, she said, when we called out someone in the student movement and they lost their job, well, that just proved how powerful Jews were, didn't it? So even when we win, we lose. Um, and I think mm. that's the position here with Kenya West. Even when you win, and it's a, not a, exactly a win, is it? But, you know, when mm. there is some consequences for a hideous racist outburst, we lose because people think, oh, there go the Jews again. It did take a while for them to to get on program, didn't it? I mean, it, it took really did. a long couple of days and you kind of could not wonder, you know, if, and we talked about this a lot about how some people don't see uh, racism against Jews as severe as other forms of racism. It kind of took, you kind of wondered if someone had, t you know, said what he said against any other minority group, they'd be out much quicker. I mean, that is for sure. Although the point here is that he has said some pretty, uh, you know, edgy things, dangerous things, dodgy mm -hmm. things about, as the tweeter said, about black folks. I think people, you know, and he had this White Lives Matter t-shirt, etc. Yeah. He's been, He's been pretty, you know, unhinged about lots of things and i say unhinged because he mm -hmm. himself has had the talks about these mental health episodes where he comes off the hinge you know i think maybe that it's confusing to people when a black man is saying things about other black people and therefore they mm -hmm. don't know how to call that out straight away mm -hmm. but yeah in this case it did take a long time and people obviously were inevitably digging up the history of as i would say adidas and saying you know, of all the companies, you would think they would really want to move quickly on this. Founded by yeah. Adolf and Rudolf Dassler, um, Adidas is a sort of contracted version of uh, the founder's name. And das, both Dassler brothers were members of the Nazi party and May joined early in 1933, May. They were early adopters. And, you know, they had, uh, Adolf took a senior rank in the Hitler Youth and stayed with it. Right until the end of the war, they were supplying the Wehrmacht with shoes. You know, they uh, they have a Nazi history, that company. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you would have thought they would want to m prove that they were, as you put it before, you know, with the program by getting rid uh, of their ties to mm -hmm. uh, Kenya West. They didn't, and they took a long time. So the whole thing has been bruising and unpleasant. And people have linked it together with the fact that you do have, you know, the word globalist in circulation in American politics. It's back in British politics a bit. Um, and you have not that long ago, those hideous synagogue shootings, Tree of Life in Poway. Again, Deborah Lipstadt talked to us about all this stuff and a banner on a, on a LA freeway. Apparently the group who did it have been doing it for a long while and haven't got attention before. So it's not like a new thing, but you add all these things together. It's not, these are dispiriting indicators for the United mm -hmm. States and Jews here are troubled by it. And I think the world over. Okay, we have some awards to uh, dole out this week, I think, like every week. We do. 
Who's going to be our mensch of the week, Yoni? I think I was going to choose. It's uh, I completely disconnected to everything we've been discussing thus far. But since we are a little bit on the subject of political instability in both our countries and maybe a little bit in the country you are right now, uh, the United States, I think it's important to keep our eye on the ball on an issue that we have been talking about a lot on Unholy, uh, which is uh, climate change. And uh, we are looking at this week in which a report uh, by the UN comes out just before uh, there are going to be climate talks uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, a good place to have this discussion, uh, of course, because the Middle East is probably going to warm up more tragically than any other place in the world. But what this report that came out is saying essentially is that climate pledges are falling short, uh, which means the world should be doing much much, much better than it has thus far. We're trying to be optimistic on this show about climate change. I don't know if we're actually succeeding in that. No, I it's know. It's going to be pr- pretty difficult if, 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 you know, countries like ours are going to keep on changing their leaders every year. I know. Or less in your case. Yeah, no, year would be good. That would be political stability <laughs> by the... No, I mean, the, the report did say that the, the planet is on track to warm by between 2.1 and maybe all the way to 2.9 degrees Celsius. And everyone was saying it has to be kept to 1.5. Even that, we know, has huge consequences. I'm remembering our conversation with David uh, Wallace-Wells when he was saying, look, in a way, the optimism is that we may keep it at that and it won't go even all the way to four or more degrees because there is some Mm -hmm. action. But you just think about these summits and, you know, I probably not you, actually, but I've been around long enough to be covering these summits for, for so long that, you know, the Earth Summit in Rio was, what, 1990, I think? I mean, this is mm-hmm. – and then they were warning how urgent it is, and it's 32 years later, you know. So Mensch of the Week, I agree with you. I think the scientists at the UN, the people there who are keeping leaders' feet to the fire – and keeping focus on maybe that's the wrong image given a a, a planet that's ablaze, but um, keeping, but I understand why you went there. You yeah, that's paging Dr. Freud. But you know, I think the idea that um, that the, the world leaders need to focus on this because it is getting it's just rapidly with us. It's not a threat in the future. It's right here. Um, so that yeah, I think they deserve um, a call out by uh, for mention of the week. I was going to do um, chutzpah and. I was just going to offer, I know we talked a bit about Britain at the beginning, but I just have to come back to Suella Braverman, um, Suella rhyming with Cruella. Um, Suella Braverman is um, back again as the Home Secretary, the equivalent of Interior Minister for Britain. Uh, Having been out for all of six days uh, in that job, um, I think that's that's right. So she's only the comeback kid, isn't she? she, This is a comeback. She had to quit as... Uh, that job under Liz Truss because of a breach of security protocol where she passed a secret classified government document to a pal in Parliament who was not authorised to see it, accidentally sent it to someone else thinking she was trying to send it to the MP friend's wife. A whole mess. Um, Senior civil servants said to Liz Truss, look, I know you've got other problems, but you cannot let this stand. She's got to go. She went. Truss went. Sunak comes in and immediately appoints Suella Braverman back again to the same job. Clearly, her reward for having backed Sunak, uh, she, you know, within in the party contest. The reason why I think it's just outrageous chutzpah is we've all got used to, you know, politicians coming back in Israel more than anywhere else, actually, even after all kinds of indiscretions that you would think would rule them out ever coming back. They always come back. But normally there is what we would call in Britain a decent interval that has to pass. You know, it used to be a few years, um, 
a, you know, a whole parliamentary term maybe. Now, or then a year, okay, a year. Now, six days is enough. You know, you just think the sort of old conventions of decency, etc., have gone. It is a chutzpah to think you've served your time and learnt your lesson for six days. Well, if you can be a prime minister, if your tenure is 44 days, then maybe six days is enough to sit it out, you know? Well, this is the thing. Everything has become shorter. Exactly. Everything is accelerated. We're on this mad Mm -hmm. fast forward at the moment, and this is part of it. But I think it's, you know, not a good thing. So um, it's a chutzpah for her to think she has done her time, had served her penance, uh, by having all of six days, it's basically like having a week off. It's like saying I'm going to have, you know, like I'll have a mini break and then come back to my job. <laughs> examine. I have examined my conscience. Is in six days and I'm back. I think it's fine. I've examined my conscience uh, and found <laughs> it to be pristine. So I'm back. Um, so that's Suella Bravman for Chutzpah. We have uh, handed out our awards. Uh, as always, we say, do keep listening. Next week is going to be an absolute must listen. Uh, Yonit's uh, media analysis of what's happened in the Israel elections that are... And that episode will drop on Wednesday because it will be one day after the election. So you won't have to wait until Friday. Yeah. It's going to come out on Wednesday. We are going to be, be with you quickly uh, for that instant verdict on what's happened in the Israel elections. Yeah, listen to Unholy on Wednesday. Expect that then. Um, We should say, do spread the word. Tell people in advance to be listening to that via Instagram or Facebook at Unholy Podcast uh, and just use all other methods to spread the word. And we will say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, Rom Atik and Yair Bashan. And we will meet next week, Jonathan. Yeah, midway next week. Enjoy your grand American adventure. Thank you very much, Yoni. And do try and get some sleep. And (laughs) big night ahead. Good luck for you on Tuesday. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.